Hello, everyone. Welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie Napolo. I'm a senior editor at BreastCancer.org, and I am joined this week by Dr. Brian Wojciechowski, our medical advisor. And we're going to talk about some of the most recent research news stories that came out pertaining to breast cancer. Hello, Brian. How are you today? I'm fine, Jamie. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing well. So we've got four studies that we're going to talk about today. Um, And the first one, actually, there are two stories on new guidelines that the American Society of Clinical Oncology has put out, uh, known as ASCO for short. And ASCO is a group of experts, and they look at research and what's being done in in, uh, treatment with patients. And then they make recommendations for for how cancer should be treated or how various things should be done. And a lot of people follow these guidelines, so that's why we're going to talk about them. The first one is on sentinel lymph node biopsy. And Brian, if you could just explain a little bit for us what exactly that is and and who might be a candidate for sentinel lymph node biopsy. Well, lymph nodes are the first place that a cancer will travel to outside of the breast. So it used to be that when a woman was diagnosed with breast cancer, the surgeon would take out all the lymph nodes in the axilla or the armpit. And this often came uh, with a lot of bad side effects like lymphedema, uh, pain, and decreased function in the arm. So eventually what was figured out was that you don't have to take every lymph node. You can just check a couple lymph nodes. So how do you know which lymph nodes to check? The surgeon, when she goes in to do the lumpectomy, will inject some dye at the site of the tumor. That dye will travel in the natural lymph node pathway to a certain couple lymph nodes in the armpit. And we have a machine that can detect that dye in those lymph nodes. So when those lymph nodes light up with the dye, the surgeon can take out, uh, you know, two or three lymph nodes and examine those. If the node is negative, you don't go any further. If there's no lymph node involvement, that's all you have to do. If a couple of nodes are positive, then you have a few options. You can take out all the nodes to the armpit, or you could go and just do some radiation. And I think what the main takeaway point from this uh, new set of guidelines is that most women with only a couple lymph lymph nodes positive can have radiation, don't need all the lymph nodes removed. Radiation is associated with less side effects than the uh, full removal of all the lymph nodes by surgery. Okay, and that that was going to be my question. It seems like this guideline is really for women who have been in what's been called a gray area, so where they have one or two positive sentinel lymph nodes, and it wasn't ever really clear which was better. Do do we remove the axillary nodes too, or is radiation okay? And it sounds like now that if the woman is going to have lumpectomy and radiation, then you don't need to have the axillary surgery. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is small tumors where there's only a couple lymph nodes involved, and most women in this category can safely uh, have radiation instead of a full axillary lymph node dissection. Okay. Is there anybody, I'm just curious, is there anybody who should not have sentinel lymph node biopsy? Is, are there times when it's just not recommended? Oh, sure, yeah. And if you look in, the, uh, if you look in these guidelines, 
there's a few different uh, cases where you should not have the sentinel nodes. Okay. Uh, one is DCIS, which is treated with lumpectomy. Uh, DCIS is considered a basically a stage zero cancer and low risk to spread to the lymph nodes. So generally speaking, it is not recommended in that case. Uh, pregnant women cannot get the sentinel lymph node procedure because of that dye, that marker can be potentially harmful to the baby. Okay. Um, okay. If it's an inflammatory breast cancer, we don't do a sentinel lymph node because uh, inflammatory is so uh, aggressive that you probably wouldn't be able to get a good reading anyway. But more importantly, uh, most women with inflammatory, because of the aggressiveness, will have to get a full dissection and radiation. Um, a very large or you know locally advanced tumor which has spread extensively in the breast or to, you know, one of those, one of those really bad tumors, uh, we usually don't do a sentinel because, again, a large tumor, very aggressive, uh, we want to get all the lymph nodes out. And you really, the studies that they did for this did not include women with large aggressive tumors. They only really included women with low-risk small tumors. Okay. Okay, that's good to know. Thank you. Um, great. Anything else you want to say about that? I thought those guidelines are fairly straightforward and should be pretty helpful, uh, for women if they're, uh, as they used to call them in that gray area. So now they, they have a choice or they can, I guess, get radiation and not have axillary dissection with peace, good peace of mind. That's right. You know, and, uh, I think if these guidelines are widely adopted, then many fewer women will have to get this this full axillary dissection, this very burdensome surgery. So I'm happy that they put these out. Great. Uh, the second set of ESCO guidelines uh, are part of, a, I guess, a very large group of guidelines that are going to come out on issues that are going to be faced or issues that are faced by cancer survivors. I believe these, these are, there are three that came out and it's going to be these are the first of a series of 18 because survivorship is becoming a very big issue now as more and more people are surviving long-term with cancer. Cancer is, is pretty much a chronic disease now. You can live for 10, 15, 20 years after being diagnosed. And so these first three guidelines focus on three different issues, neuropathy, fatigue, and depression, all of which are fairly common side effects of cancer treatment, and they're looking at ways to help survivors cope with these. So, Brian, if I could ask you, let's start with neuropathy, and if, could you just kind of explain to us what neuropathy is and then what the guidelines recommend? So neuropathy is, uh, refers to damage to the nerves themselves, usually from chemotherapy, and the most common manifestation of that is pain, numbness, tingling, and burning in the hands and feet. Usually starts in the feet, often involves the hands as well. I think most of the time it reverses, although it reverses very slowly. It might take more than a year for them to return to normal. Uh, in a very small minority of patients, the neuropathy is persistent and never really fully goes away. Does that happen with most chemotherapy or are there specific chemotherapy regimens that are known to cause neuropathy more than others? Yeah, most chemotherapy does not cause neuropathy. In breast cancer, the most frequent culprit is uh, drugs in the taxane category, so okay. Taxol or Paclitaxel or uh, Taxotere uh, um, 
or even a braxane, things like that. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, if I'm remembering right, the guidelines say that, um, some of the medicines that are now being used to treat neuropathy actually cause other side effects. So they, they don't recommend using them. Yeah. And mostly because they're largely ineffective. Okay. Not really a lot of good scientific evidence that a lot of the drugs out there can slow down or, or reverse the process of neuropathy. Now, there are drugs that can help with the symptoms and take the edge off that way, uh, such as uh, drugs that have been used for antidepressants and um, uh, and seizures like uh, like Neurontin, for example. But you know, ASCO really does not recommend use of any of those any of the drugs for prevention. Okay, so really, there's just there's limited treatment options um, for people with neuropathy are, do you know, I mean, and this is kind of, you know, uh, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but do you know, are there any sorts of uh, complementary alternative medicine ideas or, or therapies that can help with neuropathy? Like does exercise help with neuropathy? Do you know, or anything like that? I'm not aware of anything complementary or alternative that can really alter the course of neuropathy, meaning, you know, can make it go away quicker or get better sooner. Okay. Um, and, you know, it's, it's frustrating to say that because I'm, I'm constantly having these conversations with my patients. Really all we can do that I'm aware of that helps is to kind of treat the symptoms and, and try to manage the pain until it goes away. Okay. And, and is, it that, is it the nerves then just have to sort of repair themselves and that's when the pain stops? Yeah, nerve, nerve repair is a very long process. Nerves can regenerate, but it takes, a, it takes a long time. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, the second topic then in this guideline was fatigue, and I know that that is a very, very common side effect based on some of the, in, uh, the messages we get on our discussion boards as well as questions we get sent into the site and things that and all sorts of breast cancer treatments are known to cause fatigue. So what does ASCO recommend for that? Well, the first part is that we need to be more aware of the problem of fatigue, and all the patients who are under treatment should be at least screened for fatigue once a year. Uh, so that would include anyone who's being treated and anyone who's a survivor. Okay. Um, and there's other things that can contribute to fatigue, such as depression, uh, chronic pain, lack of exercise, and those are things we need to address and try to correct as healthcare professionals and that can actually mitigate some of the fatigue that the patients are having. Okay. Let me ask you this. If, is there a way for me as just an average person, I'm feeling tired all the time. Can I tell the difference between fatigue and just being tired, or is that something that I really need to go in and be screened for? So I think, I think as a lay, per, a lay person, when they're trying to figure this out, the best way to tell if it's just run-of-the-mill expected kind of you know life life fatigue, routine life fatigue versus, uh, you know, something more serious that requires intervention is ask yourself the question, does it interfere with your daily function? Can you get um, the things done that you need to get done or are things kind of falling apart, things going by the wayside? You know, you're not keeping up with the bills. You're not able to do things you need to do to get through your day. 
that's that's how you know it's a problem. It's really when it interferes with your function. Okay. Okay. Th that's very helpful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third is kind of a lead into what you said that depression can be a factor in fatigue. The third uh, part of the guideline was looking at anxiety and depression and making recommendations for screening as well as how that should be treated. So if you could kind of go over that for us. Mm -hmm. um, so anxiety and depression are very common with cancer patients and can be so severe that it's actually debilitating. As I said before, interfering with function, interfering with personal relationships. You may lose interest in the things that you loved to do before. That's a red flag for depression. Um, you may experience um, weight, weight changes and that sort of thing. And, you know, again, it's just healthcare professionals needing to be more aware of these things and make sure we screen our patients for, for anxiety and depression. I, I'm not sure if most physicians flat out ask their patients, are you experiencing anxiety and depression at every office visit? And I think we probably should do that. And it seems it sounds like, too, from the ESCO guidelines, that's something that they would like oncologists to start doing as well as like your general, you know, your regular doc that you would see for your, your physical checkup every year. So there's kind of asking both types of doctors to do that to keep in front of it. Right, exactly. And that's probably something, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that's probably something that oncologists perhaps aren't used to doing because oncologists are so focused on treating the cancer. Yeah, it's a real challenge. I'll tell you, Jamie, it's hard to find time to get there. Okay. You know, you're, you're really focused on, is the patient on the right medication? Is the diagnosis right? How do we manage the side effects of chemotherapy? And, you know, are the, are the blood counts okay? And, you know, by the time you get through all that and by the time you make your note in the electronic medical record, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to get to all those things. So that's, that's where really physician extenders like PAs and nurse practitioners and even nurses and, and the people in, on, in your staff in the office can really help, uh, for, you know, for screening for these sort of things. Social workers who can, you know, use an assessment tool like a checklist that a patient can fill out. Okay. To help determine if they're experiencing these things, then get them plugged in with the right therapy or or uh, support groups. Okay, that's good to know. And I, I have another question, too. If you've treated someone, say you've treated a woman for breast cancer, and she's done with her treatment now and, say, has been done for a couple years, do you continue to see her or usually not? Because I guess that's what I'm wondering, too. So. It sounds like sometimes these guidelines may require patients to be proactive and say to whichever doctor they're seeing, you know, I really think I need to be screened for depression or fatigue because, uh, you know, these things are happening. And if, you know, you may be more in tune with the cancer treatment, but if somebody's out of treatment, do you still see that person once a year or is it pretty much now they're back to their general practitioner? Yeah, Jamie, you know, when I get a breast cancer patient, I never let her go. Because, oh, really? Okay. Because yeah, there's always some small risk of, you know, getting another cancer in the future. So, for example, I have a lady who was initially diagnosed in 1979 who had been following 
the doctor before me in the practice all that time, and now she's my patient, and she just got diagnosed with her second breast cancer. So generally speaking, a medical oncologist is going to be following a breast cancer patient for the rest of her life. So okay. you do have a nice relationship. It's, it's kind of like almost like a primary care relationship. And, you know, in those follow-up visits where she's not on any active treatment, that's a really good time to screen for depression and anxiety. Okay. Okay. That's good to know then. So there could be potentially two doctors that are doing the screening and hopefully most of these issues would be caught. That's correct. Okay. Now our third study that we're going to talk about um, is about healthy eating after diagnosis. And there's a study that has found that this can improve survival. Um, And I'll give everybody my um, biases about these kinds of studies because I'm always concerned when a study is looking at what people eat, invariably it requires uh, people to write down and remember what they've eaten, sometimes for up to a year earlier. Now, I can't remember what I ate for dinner three days ago. I suppose I could if I actually sat down and thought really hard about it. But it always boggles my mind that they ask people, well, you know, what did you eat six months ago? And so I'm always a little skeptical of some of the results of these when they show these things. Um, And, you know, of course, the results did show that if you have, if you eat healthy, which includes like fruits and vegetables and not a lot of processed food, not a lot of sugar, that your survival is better. Um, I guess the other question I have for you about this study, Brian, is there was no mention of whether the women were following their treatment plans. Um, And so I guess I would ask you, you know, how important is that and how, how solid do we think these results are? Well, Jamie, it's not just your bias. It's, (laughs) It's a legitimate concern. I mean, you know, there's so many different studies out there and, you know, I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this, but it seems like if someone has a conclusion that they've already made about some health aspect, like, for example, vaccines, you can always go out and find a study that supports your personal conclusion. And the thing of it is, while that's true, the thing of it is, is not all studies are created equal. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the good things we do at breastcancer.org is frequently, you know, when we write up a study, we're not just saying the result, but we're just, we're also talking about the quality of that study and how reliable it is. This particular study is good because it's large, there's a lot of patients, and it's what we call prospective. So um, they're not looking back in history at what women ate uh, and and answering a question now, but they actually start with two defined groups of women and say, you're going to change your diet and you're not going to change your diet and and see what happens. So in that sense, the the study is stronger than most. Um, But it is weaker than, than other studies because, as you said, it requires people to remember what they ate, and that's not always accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a very measurable thing. And it also, as you said, uh, does not tell you how well each of the women stuck to their treatment plans. So were they, were they compliant with their hormones? Did they finish their chemo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it is somewhat limited in terms of its reliability, but I would say that Overall, it's more reliable than most, and on a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is the most reliable and 1 is the least reliable, this is probably a 6 or a 7. Okay, well, that's good. So then that 
again, is more evidence that while your diet isn't going to fix everything and it's not going to prevent everything, it can help your overall general health, which then helps you live longer, have a better quality of life. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's just so there's just so much evidence out there to support healthy diet, and this seems to back that up. Okay, okay, well that's good. And then our last study for today, there were it's actually two studies uh, that we're going to talk about together, and we're again going back to the mammogram controversy and are screening mammograms necessary? The pluses, the minuses. And these two studies both said that what we really need for screening mammograms, excuse me, is an individualized approach. And I, I'm going to back up a little bit too and ask you, Brian, to explain one of the or two of the issues with people that criticize screening mammograms are overdiagnosis and false positives. So, if you could explain for us what both of these things are, and then talk about. Um, what an individualized approach might be. So let's start with overdiagnosis. Overdiagnosis sounds like a funny thing. Um, it's hard for some people to understand how could uh, how could you have something called overdiagnosis? You get cancer, and um, and that's a good thing that you pick it up, right? Well, sure. the natural history of cancer is not necessarily to grow and spread and to hurt you. Uh, some cancers actually. Uh, spontaneously go away and are never found. Um, other cancers, say if you detect a cancer, an early stage breast cancer in a woman who's 95 years old, whose life expectancy is a year for other reasons, maybe she has uh, heart problems and the breast cancer would never have caused her any issue, mm-hmm. nor would she have ever opted for treatment. Well, that's, that's overdiagnosis. Uh, the second point uh, you said false positives, correct? Correct. So false positive is when a mammogram reveals a suspicious spot or calcifications and it ends up being benign, not malignant, okay. uh, which is usually a relief uh, in the end, but it does expose women to uh, more tests and more biopsies. So it can be a source of a lot of stress. Now, Sure. I mean, anybody, I, this has happened to me, you get called back because there's something on your mammogram and they say, oh, you need another one. We need to look at it. And you immediately get that. Oh my gosh. You know, mm-hmm. it, is, it is very stressful, but yeah. And the ideal screening test would identify every cancer and would not identify anything that's not a cancer. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately we do not live in an ideal world. And in order to get the benefit from mammograms, you have to screen a lot of women and you have to, realize that there will be some false positives and there will be some anxiety generated by those false positives and extra studies and extra tests and biopsies. Mm-hmm. And now this, these two studies were saying that if we could have a more individualized approach, so somebody who, let's go back to your first example. There's a woman who's 95 years old. She's got cardiac problems. Um, does she really need a yearly mammogram? So I wouldn't. I, I probably would not recommend that she have a yearly mammogram. But as a physician, you have to talk to the patient about it. And I have women in their 80s who come to my office and ask me, do I still need a mammogram? Here's how I answer that question. I say, well, if we found something on the mammogram, if we picked up a breast cancer, mm-hmm. 
would you have surgery? Would you have radiation? Would you consider chemo or hormone therapy? And if the answer to all those questions are no, or if I think the woman's life expectancy is quite limited for other reasons, then the answer is no, you can stop getting your mammograms. Mm -hmm. But if you, if a woman would want to be treated, then obviously she should have mammograms. Yes, that's my feeling. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. And I guess too, I know the studies say that we needed these individualized approach, but we don't really yet have the tools to do that unless a woman is at very high risk for breast cancer because of an abnormal BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene, um, family history, personal history, or other things that would put her at very high risk for breast cancer. So we do have those individualized approaches for high-risk women. We just need to kind of develop those tools for women at average risk. Yeah, you know, we we need individualized screening. Uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully 30 years from now, uh, not every woman will need to be screened because we know what their risk is going in. Mm-hmm. And we'll look back and think it was kind of silly that we did mammograms on every single woman. But unfortunately, we, we're not as good uh, as picking those high-risk patients out uh, in 2014 as we really would want to be. Okay. And, and just to reiterate, to make it very clear, the breastcancer.org stance is that every woman should have an annual mammogram because if unless you're at high risk, then you may need more frequent screening. But right now, we just don't have the tools to know who may be at average risk, who's below average risk, who's a little bit higher than average. Um, so you really do need to get that screening. And if, Yeah, starting at age 40. Yep, yep, starting at age 40, no matter what other things that you may have heard about people saying, no, you don't need it. Well, you really do. And we know that mammograms aren't perfect, but right now they're the best screening tool that we have. So we would urge everyone to get your annual mammogram. And there are programs, if you have um, problems getting to a mammogram screening center, there are programs that can help you get there. If you find mammograms are painful, you can talk to the mammogram technician and you can figure out ways to make that less painful. If you have a problem affording them, I, I hope no one does because they are now... Under the Affordable Care Act, mammograms are paid for. But if you do have an issue paying for it, if you don't have insurance, there are programs that offer free mammogram screenings, too. So please do everything you can to get your annual mammogram. And I, I yep. And I, unless you have anything else to add, Brian, I think that's our podcast for today. Does that sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. Thank you so much. I always appreciate your insights. And again, thank you everyone for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of the breastcancer.org podcast on research news stories.